welcome to episode 135 of the Daniel Yoris Podcast with today's guest, Chuck Brinker. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Chuck Rinker. Chuck, thanks for being here, man. I'm really excited to speak with you today. Appreciate it, Daniel. I'm glad to be here. You're one of these people that has a super interesting career story. Looking through your resume, so to speak, it's like, oh, I know that. I know that. I know Disney and, 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 and the things that you love about Disney. I know EA Sports. I've played Madden. I've played NCAA football. Like, there's people, like, real people in the world who work on it, and you're one of those people. Yeah. Like, that must be a super cool feeling to be, have been a part of these things that really impact a lot of people. Oh, yeah. We, we, we jokingly call it pride in product. Anytime someone recognizes the efforts you put in, you, you can't help but uh, feel good about the the work you put in there. Yeah, absolutely. So I appreciate you noticing. Of course, of course. And now on to, you know, things that maybe are less customer focused and, and, and you know, fun focused, but more helping the world. But I... I I don't know much about the technology around uh, everything, and I'll you know give you a chance to explain what it is that you're doing. But I'd imagine that there's a lot of crossover between the sort of gaming world and the fun imagination world into the world of AI and having real world implications. Because it's like the gaming world is you know you play and see what we can do, and then okay, how do we get some real uses out of that? So did that crossover work work out pretty well for you? Oh, actually, a- absolutely, and um, not not to sound a little too condescending, but th- they're, they're all one and the same. Mm. Um, that's exactly how I got into this. Uh, to to kind of add to that little background and interest, people are usually even more surprised not to find out that I directed the EA Sports football titles, but to find out that I actually grew up a cattle farmer. Oh, so wow. how does a cattle farmer become a human AI expert? Um, um, but no, ever since I was a kid, I was a uh, uh, really intrigued by automation and um, um, what what things could happen that weren't the, the manual hand labor I did my whole life, which is which is a good ethical tool. I wish everybody would be forced to to work yeah. a farm for five years or so. Uh, I think they'd take a different perspective on life. But that being said, I've always had this interest and intrigue on on how things work. Uh, how how do how do things work? And Mattel came out with this big track back in the day when you could teach this little six track space rover how to drive around your your floor and stuff. And I was taken apart. Didn't always figure out how to put them back <laughs> together, but I could get them apart. So as I moved forward and forward, um, I started, we were living outside of DC. I started getting into military simulation. You know, I was, did a lot of military simulation work, teaching um, 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 some of our troops how to use technology. Then I got into that, led directly to some of the gaming knowledge. Um, I did a lot of work with NASA as well on some spaceborne systems. Also, there was a lot of training systems involved. And then that naturally led to games because we were just doing military gaming, but I wanted to do something a little more entertaining, a little more fluid. So we started building um, sports titles that did a fighting game. And of course, that uh, ultimately led to the football titles. Um, I got farther and farther into that. And then about uh, 20, 20 something years ago, I said, you know, we've done all this great automation. What can we do to make this a little more different, a little more commercial, a little more, I'll call it for the betterment of, of <laughs> different things besides just entertainment. So we started um, New Media and New Media was a consulting business doing 
engagement work, which ultimately led to personas. And personas is where we're today, which is the ideal of what takes a personality, what what makes Daniel Daniel. Hmm. It's not only just how you look, it's how you head head your response, your nods, your mannerisms, but also what's between your ears. You know, what do you know? What is your knowledge base? How you deliver that? How do you communicate? All that is a personality, and that's a pretty complex thing. AI has become very um, sophisticated. Some people use the word digital human. I don't. We'll get to that why there's a difference between what we do and what a digital human is. And we'll talk about that later. So the reason I told you that whole background is what people don't realize. Every single thing I did from the Mattel big track in the early 1980s, and I was a, a young kid playing with toys. Actually, I shouldn't say I was a teenager at that time. Show my age a little. Um, that was very, very, very fundamental rudimentary AI. That was an artificial intelligence that could drive a, tra- a six-wheel tractor around your floor, all the way through the gaming, all the way through where we're at. And it's all been AI is not new. Right. AI is just a more complex tool. Now, now you, you you look like you had a thought. No, there. yeah, just a quick one. What was the con- I don't know the history of this, but like, was the concept of AI as we know it now? Did did this thought even exist at that time? Like. It, thinking backwards, you can say that it was a form of artificial intelligence, but did this concept really exist in the 80s? N- not in the same terminology. Um, um, in the gaming space, absolutely. You know, when, when I was building football games in the 90s, it absolutely was still okay. considered artificial intelligence. And I jokingly tell people, people like, oh, this is so sophisticated and advanced. You got to remember, we had 52 football players. We were teaching 11-11. We had 22 AI characters running around a field. One of them was controlled by the human. The other right. 20 are running around the field, catching footballs, knowing how to <laughs> gang tackle, knowing one how to tackle high, one how to tackle low, all while you're rendering these 3D environments. AI has been pretty sophisticated. Now, the leap from there to the AI that everybody is getting excited about now, and a lot of people are calling it generative AI, is because the AI has advanced enough that we're now starting to mimic the fidelity, the resolution of what the humans think used to be our exclusive territory. We can understand speech. We can synthesize speech. We can look through mounds of data quickly. Your your brain's pretty fascinating uh, organ um, and come up with answers instantly. So now that our AI is that sophisticated, um, I think the term generative AI is new. Um, um, being able to generate realistic things. But the concept of AI and the term AI has, has been around probably as long as uh, much of your audience, and I'm not trying to judge them, I, I don't know, but based on your age and my age difference, um, 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 has been around probably as long as your audience has. Yeah. No, no, that that makes sense. It's it's interesting because it's just kind of blown up in the in the you know the public sphere. But like my, I have a I have two younger brothers. But the middle of my brother, he's a software engineer. Now, the first time I heard about chat GPT, you know, a year ago, I was like, Oh my God, have you heard about this thing? He's like, yeah, it's like not that new. And I'm like, Oh, but what do you mean? What do you mean? It's not that new. And no one's ever heard about this. This is crazy. And he's like, you know, cause he's deep in that world. And so he, you know, knows about these yep. things. Right. Uh, but you know, someone who's, who's been around for, for longer and been deeper into it, be like, yeah, chat GPT, like, you know, whatever, that's nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, everybody hears these old stories. There used to be a game way back in the 80s, it was a text-based game. You know, everybody plays these MMOGs, you know, these multi-master player online games, these fantasy games. And there was a game called Eliza. And everybody here probably doesn't know, but I, I, I challenge your audience to look it up. It's in the, uh, it's in Google, um, E-L-I-Z-E, E-L-I-Z-A. And it literally was conversational 
text. Wow. So you could type to it and you could ask questions and it would give you answers back. And it was like this psychiatrist and it was using like very vague responses and all. But at the end of the day, it was kind of that whole, you see it in the movies, the Turing test is what they call it. Right. If you're talking to something and you can't visually see them, is it human or not? You know, what is that test? And and that's why things are so... Um, hot right now i'll call it or busy or uh, not busy that's the wrong word but uh, uh predominant right now is because we're, we're we're really getting better at blurring that line between the ai i'm talking about from the 80s and 90s and early 2000s to the ai people we're seeing which actually brings to forth that term digital human now people are using it and there's a lot of um, deep fake type technology mm-hmm. you can deep fake voices you can deep fake dre's singing voice you can deep fake what people look like um, but at the end of the day they're trying to recreate a human and fool you into thinking it's a human we like to tout ai personalities because our goal is not to replace a human our goal is to say, hey, you've got all this wonderful technology. You like generative AI, like electronic health records for the, for the health system, like all this data you get for, um, um, you know, direct, uh, um, um, knowledge base that pertains to what you're interested in and all this technology that can scale, um, productivity is hidden behind like your brother who's a software engineer. You know, it takes a pretty trained, uh, soul to uh, to take advantage of all of it and what we're basically telling the world is wait time out guys we're at such a point in history that our computers are sophisticated and our artificial intelligence is sophisticated enough that let's stop thinking about how to teach daniel yours how to use all this great technology we can make that more and more invisible by teaching technology how to communicate mm. like you and i have naturally been doing for hundreds of thousands of years probably a couple of million years depending on your view on human history um might even be farther than that so our our, our units are set up so that we create a a human layer a, a user experience layer so if you speak spanish or french um, we have a patent on sign language, if you're a member of the deaf community. How do you communicate? And you might have a knowledge up here, but how do you communicate with a um, um, cultural diversity that makes people comfortable, um, that can be empathetic to the different groups you're trying to reach, that can make it so that there is, an, uh, I call it invisible technology. We can speak Spanish, French, 148 languages. We can have non-binary characters. We can have females. We can have males. We can have... Um, signing uh, characters that can sign and then all of a sudden that opens up this big world of whatever information you're trying to digest can and whatever productivity you're trying to scale within your organization or your personal life you can now do that with think of it as a we used to use the word personal assistant which used to be you know a little android type phone or a little blueberry um, blackberry and blueberries if people are back from the blackberry days um um and so how, how do you really turn that into your own personal assistant? And that's really kind of where we're at with the technology these days. Yeah, it, it's so interesting to, to hear about it as an outsider. And, and I think that healthcare has a, is a perfect place to implement it. Just thinking of my own grandparents' current state, right? They're getting older. They immigrated to this country. They all speak English, but their English is not perfect. And so when they're trying to communicate something that is hurting them or something that's something that's wrong to a doctor who is English speaking or doesn't speak their their uh, primary language, 
it's sometimes difficult. And so, you know, my mom or my dad or, you know, my aunts or uncles will have to go with them to the appointments to sort of be the, the, the translator type of thing. And that, and the translation thing is probably like not that difficult, but it would probably make them a lot more comfortable if they could just do it on their own. It, it provides like yes. autonomy so that they're speaking to a screen and the screen, you know, it's, it's not like, you know, revealing embarrassing possibly information in front of your, yeah. your daughter or son or family member, grand grandson, whatever. Um, and, and, you know, all of the things that make people different to be able to speak to a, a, a computer, so to speak, rather than speaking to it to a family member and to translate that to the doctor and then vice versa so that the doctor can speak in maybe even more medical terms, which to some doctors may be more comfortable. And then the AI translates it back into like regular people words to understand what, what it is that you're <laughs> yeah. supposed to be doing, right? So, so can it work? It can work both ways, I assume. A, a lot of that is, and you hit on a couple of really key points. So, so you're definitely getting the concept um, um, probably much more quickly than many are. Um, we're not quite at the medical to translation. At least that's not our forte. I'm sure people do. What we're really focused on is the patient journey. Right. We really like patient journey and human journey. So, but you keyed in on a few things uh, referring to your grandmother who might not be a native speaking English um, patient. And even though many hospitals do have translators, not all hospitals have the resources and usually have to uh, track them down or hunt them down or go make a phone call. And then the person coming through the door, the patient doesn't know where to get that information. Um, so what we do is try to be a front and center experience where we can deduce what that person is, make them feel comfortable, make them feel welcomed. You know, they're usually in a high stress environment like a hospital or they're going through a, a, a horrible disease state like cancer or something like that. And that's not where their mind is, is not on technology. So to be able to walk into a facility and say, Sprechen Sie Deutsch, and all of a sudden it says, you know, V. Gates, and starts greeting you and conversing with you in German, and then allows you to say, how do I get to the pharmacy in German, or I've got a two o'clock appointment with, you know, the phlebotomy lag, I need blood work or whatever, and for them to not only understand um, um, where they need to go and to be able to understand that language, but not even that they don't even need to know how to what if they don't know where they want to go? Like our systems have the capability of someone walking in the door and going, I told him, told me I need a blood test done. Oh, well, you need the phlebotomy lab go over here. So um, to have that knowledge on what a receptionist would do um, um, is a productivity benefit for the staff. And I, and I say that very carefully because a lot of people have watched way too many movies and think that, you know, AI, digital A, humans are here to take over the world and humans are inferior. No, you, you can't automate away human innovation and human creativity. However, if you could increase that productivity and say, okay, I'm going to give your human staff 10 to 20 hours back a, a, a week and I can take care of the mundane repetitive tasks. Machines are great at mundane repetitive tasks. Right. Um, um, that would increase everybody's productivity. That would allow those one-to-one human uh, connections that need to happen um, to take place without the uh, tremendous burden. Um, I know on the U.S., we do a lot of work in the NHS in the U.K. as well. The burden on the healthcare staff is getting worse and worse by almost by the day, by the week. It's just, it's just horrible. Um, and to be able to help relieve some of that burden and give those frontline workers a little breathing room and a little bit of ability. Um, and I stress that because um um, that that go back to that fear mongering that many people get from the AI world. I'm one of these guys that go AI is awesome, but it's another tool. Mm-hmm. Nobody yelled and screamed. Well, actually, that's not true. But you know, <laughs> laptops versus manual typewriters. Nobody yells about laptops being a product. Ooh, you put sec- you know you put typist out of work. 
Well, yeah, but we had a productivity increase and nobody's complaining that we've put typists out of work because you have a laptop. You know what? The new laptops, they just happen to speak whatever your native language is and they happen to be a little more representational of humans. I mean, the younger generation gets it. You alluded to to, to, uh, feeling more comfortable and it's amazing that you pointed out um, the desire to not be judged by a human because we do some work in the clinical trial work. We have a good partnership with the RTI International, their clinical research organization. And our characters are used for consent and recruitment in the clinical trial world for that very reason that we can put up a Hispanic, a young Hispanic female and have that um, um, Hispanic character speaking native Spanish with a Hispanic cultural feel, look and feel. And the patrons or the participants in those studies are providing more accurate information mm. to the avatars than they are to the, you know, let's be a little blunt and I'll be self-inflicting here. The 57 year old gray haired white guy, <laughs> we're doing a trial with opioid addicted young black mothers, young minority group mothers. Right. They don't really want to talk to me. I mean, I, I, I accept that I'm, I'm a, I'm six foot eight, 300 pounds. I'm a pretty intimidating fellow already. So you add that to a um, non-connection from a cultural standpoint and from a language standpoint, and there's a, a natural uneasiness. There's a sure. natural approachability that's lost with that. So these characters do have the ability and um, um, to connect, and and I think that goes back to your very first question. Well, what, what what does this have to do with you being a gamer guy? That's exactly what it has to do. And the gamer, you build your own avatar. You build your avatar and your likeness of either what you are, or what you want to be. You connect to that. I, of course, I'm a Mario guy. I connect to Bowser. You know, <laughs> I, I look like Bowser. Bowser's got that just brute force, knock everybody off the road personality. <laughs> so, um, but I relate to that. Yeah. And when you relate to that, you sit in front of those games for 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 hours, days, months. And that's almost, um, I hate to use the word addictive, but there is a little bit of an addictive component to it. And I kind of say, what if we could use this technology so that people get addicted to their own fitness, to their own health, give them that assistant, give them that break down that communication barrier and make it engaging, make them feel comfortable, make it feel approachable, make them feel represented and then make them want to do that, make them break down that, 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 that stigma behind, you know, the piece. So that's where we're at. Yeah. I think the discussion around efficiency is super interesting and kind of what the focus should be on. Cause I've heard the arguments as well as like, Oh, this is going to take away so many jobs. And it's like, well, maybe, but maybe it's just going to allow people to do better at their job. Like, do we need people at the hospital who are directing you, uh, the, you know, the, the blood lab is this way, the, the pregnancy ward is this way, this, you know, like that's not really, that's a very low level of, of work and maybe there's a place for that. But then the, the people who are currently doing that can spend that extra time doing something that's a little bit more important, Absolutely. scheduling, a, you know, scheduling appointments, dealing with patients, making people feel comfortable, like these kind of, these kind of things that are a little bit more important than just, you know, menial uh, tasks. And so this, this whole concept of efficiency, I think is one of the biggest complaints across the healthcare system is like, I just can't, I can't get anyone on the phone. I can't figure out what to do. I can't figure out where to go. I can't get an appointment. It it takes too long to to get back with someone. The actual care side of things is a different thing, but even still as maybe not with, with with your avatars, but other AI systems that are actually working with the the doctors in the medical Mm -hmm. side of things. It's like, if it opens up, uh, you know, if it takes away some charting time or some admin work that the doctors have to do, then they can spend more time instead of seven minutes with each patient 
patient, they can now spend 15 minutes with each patient. And how is that going to change patient outcomes? Probably it's going to do a, do a good thing. So I think it's really going to open a lot of things up rather than just sort of, you know, take over and all of us are going to be, you know, jobless yeah. and, and purposeless nope. living at home twiddling our thumbs. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's going to happen. I, I guess it's a possibility. Anything's possible, but I don't think that that's what's going to happen. I don't know. Historic productivity increases always just loved, led to a higher bar, sometimes a higher quality of living, sometimes a higher quality of care. Um, um, you, you keyed in on a few things and it's not really my forte, but um, I deal enough in the AI space to know things like um, um, my wife's a two-time breast cancer survivor and to have AI to be able to create um, um, do better diagnostics mammograms than most humans can be at least more consistently mm-hmm. to have you mention the um, um, charting the, um, the 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 documentation required by our healthcare professionals our HCPs are burdened tremendously by that and there are a lot of dictation systems that are trained specifically on medical terminology and healthcare terminology to help uh, alleviate that which gives the doctors more time to spend with patients and you remind me of a funny little story I typically tell people about um, the healthcare, and this is another one of those googleable things I'm not just making it up <laughs> but I'm um, way back in the day when the stethoscope was first invented there was a certain portion of the physician community that resisted the stethoscope. Oh, you're trying to replace the human ear. It's not sensitive enough. <laughs> you're going to destroy healthcare. You're putting our patients at jeopardy, blah, blah, blah. And now you can't find an HCP, whether it's a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a doctor, anybody, a phlebotomist. You can't even survive in the healthcare system without a stethoscope. But that was deemed a tool that was going to take healthcare jobs away when it was introduced. So, so yeah, it's, it is a leap. It's a big leap in productivity. It's a big leap in um, what we call the uncanny valley. Have you ever heard that term? No. Uncanny Valley is the concept of when things get too human. I, I try to dumb it down. The, the, the definition is when a digital representation of a human becomes so lifelike that you blur the line between whether it's real or not, but your mind is so in tune with the subtleties of, you know, my eyebrows, my, my face is not as symmetrical as people think. I got little whiskers and they move different based on the skin. And so the point is, is, um, and how your hands move and your joints move. There's so many subtleties that you and I as human are so keyed on. We can see, oh, that's human or that's almost human, but it's not quite human. So mm. it becomes creepy. Right. So the uncanny valley is this, well, it's too realistic, but not real, but it's not human. So it kind of drops off this cliff, cliff and just creeps people out. I call it the horror film. You know, when you watch a horror flick and if there's a human form, but it's just a little different. Their eyes are a little too big yeah. or their, their neck turns 195 degrees <laughs> backwards. It doesn't quite, and you just know, well, there's nothing physically wrong with that, but it doesn't do what humans really do. And so it creeps you out. And so when you look at the belief, our approach with this, what we call human communication, not human replication. We're not trying to replicate humans. We're trying to communicate, but we communicate naturally with other humans. So we do have a human form. And that's the beauty of the gaming industry and what we learned about engagement in the gaming world. So our characters do resemble a little more animated characters. We've done work with Disney. We've done work with Wrangler. We've done work with a bunch of Fortune 500s about creating a brand image and a character image that resonates and that is approachable and empathetic to your population. 
but it's not human. So our characters look a little more animated. We get away with a little more. You know, if their lip sync isn't perfect or their hand gestures not exactly perfect, just like when you watch a, a, a cartoon or you play, you know, Halo or you play, you know, Call of Duty or whatever game you're into um, with an avatar. Let's take Mario Kart or something a little more friendly. If you're playing Princess Peach and you're driving a race car, she's not human and she's really kind of making mistakes, but you believe it. Right. You get to what that suspension of disbelief because you're now identifying with that character, racing with that character, and you feel comfortable. So that's really the psychology behind our digital personalities is based on the psychology of how the world perceives gaming characters, not how the world perceives humans. Right. I guess there's, there's also something to the fact that if it looks more cartoonish, let's say, you have a you don't have an expectation that it's human because it's very obviously exactly. not human. And so you just, the, 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 the flaws, so to speak, are just whatever. You don't notice them because you're not expecting it to be human versus something that is like intended to be human. You can pick up on those little things because you're like, ah, oh, this is close, but it's not the same thing versus a cartoon character, right? Absolutely, and there's there's even some clinical trials um um that 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 we look through and um it's not a um topic that's been around long enough to have a ton of data behind it, but there are several studies that go back five six years, some of them, and one of them is in particular that that we quote to a lot of our clients that shows three avatars, one that's a really animated character, like almost like a a robot looking thing, and then there's one that looks more like a cartoon character um, animated i like to call them cgi characters because ours are a little more than cartoon ours are full 3d but then you take a photorealistic character that uh, that you know what everybody thinks of the cgi characters now and um the trust factor and the believability when they're totally cartoonish and stick figure and obviously not meant to be the guy that's just a toy right when they're photo photorealistic the human psyche says wait I don't trust that. That's too mm. creepy. That that's trying to be. You're trying to pull the wool over me. You're trying to fool me. You know, it's almost that. Um, um, they didn't quote it that way, but if you look at the results, the trust factor drops off. But that sweet spot is just before what we call that uncanny valley curve. If I could draw it, you got that little dip, mm. and, and just as you get before that, that's where the characters are more approachable, more believable, more trustworthy. Trust, trust, trust is something we tout in the healthcare, especially in clinical trial, and people trust those characters. Um, and it's it's an interesting psychology on how humans perceive uh, uh, rendered and animated characters. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure this is going to continue to like advance. And I and I and I wonder if we'll ever get to a point if it will make sense to get to a point where the photorealistic avatars become so real that they are the way to go or if it will always kind of be in this sort of like mid-range type of I, I know it's not real but it's human enough that I can kind of speak to it and, and understand it I think there are a lot of companies we, we started that way quite honestly in full disclosure everybody makes mistakes sure. we started that way and um, we had 80% of our clients going this is cool this is cool but then 20% of the customers were going this is creepy this is creepy <laughs> so we backed off of it Um, so we went that route I think we're closer than people think. Deep fakes are already there. Yeah. Um, the ability to recreate that. I think you're opening up a whole avenue of um, ethics behind AI and generative AI that that I can't claim an expertise in. We work directly with our 
client experience teams or customer experience or patient experience teams, and we rely on them for what they want to divulge to their clients. We're not trying to be the governance body behind the ethical use of AI. Um, we're, we're just trying to create a delivery mechanism. Um, but to your point, I think we're, we're closer, if not already there. And there are use cases I've seen that I, I, I believe are, are beneficial. I've got a good friend who runs a local company that uses um, CGI avatars for medical training and you're trying to train, okay, reading somebody's chart, administering a certain medication or a certain intervention procedure or they're flatlining on their bed. So when you get trying to get into a realistic simulation, um, there's another phenomenon that we don't deal with a lot, but I did when I was doing all my military work, and that's the um, suspension of disbelief for those who are being trained. You want that person to be in that, and they believe what they're into. Right. Because if you're playing a game, we all know as gamers, okay, I died. I get 14 more lives. It doesn't really matter. But the the how people perform when they're under pressure how people perform when they believe they're in that scenario. I think those types of pieces for like law enforcement, medical training, medical simulation, when you're really talking about simulations, not customer engagement, not patient engagement, simulation type work um, would definitely benefit from that. And um, um, I did an interesting little fun stint with a company as a, as a realism consultant for a, uh, a company that builds the FAT system, FATS, to firearms training simulation, and they were sh- getting shot back at. So you want the <laughs> you want the uh, uh, people using the simulation to feel the stress of being in a combat situation. So to be able to create the photorealistic responses, so your your adrenaline's pumping, you're worrying about being shot at more than shooting. So your accuracy goes from okay, I'm a 85% hitter. Now I'm barely hitting 20% because I'm scared. You know what? And so so to create those scenarios, and I'm not saying it has to be military, but for the medical as well, um, those kind of scenarios I think are um, um, prime candidates for trying to get past that uncanny valley. But right. for everyday life, everyday humans, let's just make it engaging. Yeah. Yeah. Even like for, for me, a sports analogy to that was like, I, I played soccer as my main, my main sport that I played. And, you know, in, in training sessions in practice, you know, the goalies were off doing their own goalie training. So we're doing the whatever drill and you finish by, by scoring a goal, but the, but the net was mm-hmm. empty. There was no goalie in the net. And our coach would like hammer us about like, shoot as if there's a goalie in the net. Don't just, yeah. don't just roll it in because in a game that that's not the way it's going to be. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so it's the same sort of like, you know, practice, practice like you're going to play type of thing. And so in, in good medical analogies. situations or, or military situations, obviously that's a lot more important than, than other yes. things. You gotta, you gotta be prepared because you only get one, one chance. Now, yep. what were some things, uh, aside from sort of the, the, maybe the, uh, the cultural connections that you guys identified as gaps or, or flaws maybe in the medical system that you felt, uh, you know, your AI characters could, could fill the gap in, uh, as far as in the medical field? Mm-hmm. Ironically, it's kind of the, um, uh, I don't want to sound too simplistic, but it's kind of the same answer as communication. Mm-hmm. Um, like clinical trial, we've done a fair amount in clinical trial. Um, clinical trials, at least in the U.S., are, um, are are very regulated, of course, but they're very biased. There's there's a trust, especially in the minority communities, about um, 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 engaging in and participating in clinical trials. Um, you know, in the U.S. until I think it was 1972, women weren't even allowed to participate in clinical trials yeah. um, for various reasons. And so now, even though clinical trials, because they don't always have unlimited resources, are primarily conducted with um, um, 
certain demographics that they're trying to target. And if you're trying to target a certain minority demographic, but you can't attract that audience, you can't attract those participants um, because the average clinical trial participant, use your own judgment on why, is typically your 30 to middle-aged males, white males. Those are the guys that participate in trials. I've been in three myself. Of course, I'm a late-stage cancer survivor myself, so I have a little bit different perspective and focus on why I'm focusing heavy on uh, um, 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 clinical trials in the healthcare sector. It's, it's, it's a lot about some personal challenges. Um, but in any sense, the point there is um, um, to be able to identify within the healthcare sector and to attract those so that there's no communication barrier. We can show them we can improve trust. Um, if we can do cultural diversity, if we can hit some of the non-binary um, um, trials that will focus on disease states that are primarily focused in, in, in that demographic, um, we kind of hope, knock on wood, that more and more uh, clinical trial organizations and healthcare facilities are going to start stressing um, the patient perspective look at everything from a patient perspective not just a ooh this is a the efficacy this is a more efficient drug this is a more effective drug um, here's how we get more patients in and out here's how we get better returns on our hospital expenditures here's how we minimize in, um, our operational expense at the hospital and start thinking less about ooh just how do we make this scale and profitable but how do we address the mental state of the patient patient journey, um, trust me, I know all too well firsthand um, um, when, when a doctor tells you you're late stage cancer and you're, you know, have a pretty damn good chance of not being here in a few years. You, you got different stuff going on in your mind right. than what's the most efficient way to check in at a hospital right. or what's the most efficient way to, uh, uh, you know, get find some clinical trials that might help you out. You really just are in a different mental state. So we really... Um, 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 want to stress to your point about um, where are some of those application areas and I think that's a place for we call it personas with a purpose you know personas with a heart how do you take this personality engine that we really derive from the gaming space as a matter of fact our renderings unity game engine we don't make bones about it we've built a lot of our technology on top of the gaming technology my uh, cto was an ex madden programmer himself and had worked on some wimbledon systems and also we're really a bunch of gamers <laughs> and we say hey if we can if we can attract 10 million gamers why don't we attract 10 million um, customers or patients and so that's really where we're focusing our efforts i'd imagine though that like the implementation of this would even end up increasing profits and revenues in hospitals because you're increasing efficiency like i don't i don't know these stats but i would imagine that there's some truth to to, to what i'm about to say is yep. that like people who are part of minority demographics and name your your minority are less likely to even visit a hospital because they are uh you know uncomfortable let's just put it at that and you know there's a whole that's a whole hours of discussion that i don't think yep. we need to have but like i think that that's you know at least close to the truth so if we can eliminate some of that discomfort by using avatars that are more 
uh, like these people, then they're more likely to visit the hospital, which one, it's a weird thing to talk about, like, oh, it's increasing the profits. Like, we, I don't want anyone to have to go to the hospital, but the truth is people get sick and people need to access the healthcare system and that's what it's there for. So if they're foregoing going to the hospital because they're mm-hmm. uncomfortable, that's a poor thing. And then they end up, you know, their health outcomes are worse. So if we can get people into the hospital when they actually need it and remove some of those barriers, that's going to get more people through the doors. It's going to actually increase the profits of the hospital and more importantly, help more people but more effectively than than they're currently being helped because they're just ignoring access to to things that can help them. Yeah, 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 absolutely. On, on a broad scale, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir there, of course, yeah. but um, you're paraphrasing very well. It's, it's really about getting access, making people feel represented, comfortable. Um, and it does increase, even in the U.S., we're, we're an interesting healthcare system because we're very um, aligned with a commercial entity, un, un, unlike our, our partners in the uh, U.K. In America, you can go to whatever hospital you want. I, I fly down to Texas every year to keep check on my cancer. Um, you know, I go anywhere I want. And so you're really driven by the perception of I'm being addressed, I'm being um, represented, I'm being um, 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 treated with respect as a patient. Um, they hear me, they see me, they're helping me. And so there really is a, um, to your point, there really is a commercial benefit to what we call patient satisfaction, a very quantifiable benefit. Um, which is a great byproduct. The um, str- I won't, well, I'll call it a struggle. I'll be honest. The struggle we have, at least in the U.S., and I'd like to hear your opinion on how it is in Canada with a, a single payer type system. Um, in the U.S., since it is voluntary, no one says you have to go to the hospital. No one says you have to go to any hospital. So um, within our our system, we're very. Um, I'll just say it and I'll get, I'll get myself in trouble with some of my clients, probably very conservative. They have, they're driven by protocols for variety, for, for various, for good reasons. You have to, you know, there's the motto of do no harm to your patients. But what does that really mean? Okay. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to not risk that 3% chance that I'm going to do you harm, but I could help 97% more people if I took that risk, you know, so where's that line? And we tend to err on the side of overly conservatism, I believe. And so it's really hard to get um, hospital systems, healthcare systems, uh, uh, private practices, um, clinical trials to think outside that box and to really, I know that's a cliche term, but to think not, ooh, how do we avoid this pain? But look at the upside potential. So it's really hard to get some of those use cases and those proof points. And people are more likely to go, well, unless you can prove that you're going to make this better. And unless you can prove that you're going to increase my profits or unless you can prove through outcomes that you're going to improve the quality of life for my patients or decrease the morbidity rate. You got to have those proof points. But for a technology as new as AI, or at least generative AI and the AI as we see it today that has this massive potential to recreate human personalities and to be that engagement tool, that's not out there. So we really spend the majority of our time educating and informing, which quite honestly, and I appreciate it, Daniel, which is why we're actively trying to get me to some of these podcasts and I'll try to get people to hear and go, you know what, maybe we should think a little different because the upside potential is astronomical. If you can increase your your profits, increase the quality of life for patients and increase your outcomes and decrease lives. I mean, 
who in the pardon the French, but who in the hell wouldn't want to do that? Yeah. But there's such a resistance because of that mentality. I think that this this again just comes so much back to increasing efficiency in the whole system. You know, to your to your point about comparing to, to the Canadian system, I don't think it's that different. I think the, the 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 standards of care, what they're supposed to do for X condition are pretty set in stone and they're and they're conservative. They're on the safe side of things and, and probably for the best across a large number of people. However, as we know about averages, like nobody fits the actual average. And so who does that treatment plan really help? Well, it helps. It sort of helps a lot of people, but there's a lot of people on the fringes of those of that average who are not being well serviced by whatever that that treatment plan is. And so if we had more time created for for the doctors and for the entire medical team and system to better individualize care, then that would create better patient outcomes. And so I don't, I don't, I don't really see a valid argument like against that. So it's, 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 but you're right that it's probably not something that people really think about. And we think about all the scary side AI is going to like take over and the, you know, the companies are going to program this to, uh, to, you know, make sure we all die or some, some, you know, conspiracy theory (laughs) craziness. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I mean, I guess anything's possible. Sure. But, but you know, let's, let's also live in, live in the real world a little bit here. So, so, you know, just increasing the, the efficiency and, and the work capacity available of the doctors, the time they have to, to give care to you and give more individualized care, I think that's really like the take-home message that, that people should be thinking about here is like, hey, that treatment plan that you always give didn't work for me. And then the doctor just says, well, that's all we can do. And you're like, well, you know, but I heard about such and such. And it's like, ah, oh, well, that's not really, we don't do that here. And then yeah. in our system here, you just, when you get that, oh, we don't do that here, it, that also means we don't do that anywhere here. That means now you have to leave the country to go and find someone who will who will do that, which becomes very, very expensive and very, very difficult, right? Because they're all doing the same thing and all, you know, because that's the way the system is here. So, you know, again, increase the efficiency, allow the doctors to do more of what they're good at, which is treating people and less of like the stuff that's just taking up their time that is also necessary. Right. No, nope. couldn't said it better myself. And uh, I don't have as much visibility into the Canadian healthcare system as I probably do the NHS, but um, it sounds like there's a lot of parallelisms and you spoke very well. And some of the items you mentioned there do do resonate in some of the challenges that we're facing at the NHS as well already. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I don't have much insight into the, into the NHS, but, but uh, I, I would imagine that there's a lot of similarities in all yes. kind of like publicly funded um, systems that are there. Yeah. Absolutely. What are some of the drawbacks of this this whole system, if any, and and are they are the drawbacks or the the, the negatives just due to like has not enough time has passed and like the technology will catch up and, and close the gaps, or are there legitimate things that we should be concerned about or worried about at all with this? Um, that's probably a whole podcast in itself, <laughs> and a lot of it's out of my expertise. But some of the immediate drawbacks I see outside of what I just mentioned, it's so new in the healthcare in particular. Um, we're, we're, we're seeing some more, um, entities embrace it that are on the commercial side. They're a little more, uh, a little less risk adverse. You know, they're a little more willing to, to roll the dice. We did some work with Wrangler and the Seattle Mariners and stuff like that. And, um, um, they, they, they're out, you know, out there just trying to get attention, which is good, which is good. So that's raising awareness. I think the, the negatives that you're seeing in my mind is, um, um, we have a we do we have a relationship with Gardner, uh, but Gardner re- 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 um, publishes what they call a hype cycle, 
on a bunch of different technologies. Hype cycle in the emerging tech includes the AI. And I think they frame it up much better than I could, which is why I'm quoting them. Typically, when you have a new technology like generative AI and chat GPT and the AI in general and the, the complexities that you're getting out of 3D rendering technologies and speech to text and text to speech and natural language parsing and all these buzz terms that we throw together to create this personality, you get this hype. People start seeing it, they're scared of it, but they get this hype and they're going, oh, wow, this is great. This is awesome. This is going to change everything. But then what happens is the reality sets in where it's good. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, but they've overpromised. So you get right. this, what we call a, a slope of disillusionment. Oh, shoot. It's really not as good as we think. And it kind of peaks down. It usually takes three to five years before it kind of stabilizes out. And then people really figure out how it really fits in. What can it really do well and where are its shortcomings? Some of those shortcomings are already showing themselves from what we call hallucinations. You know, um, what you'll find is anytime you have a large language model learning tool like a chat GPT or generative AI engine or an open AI engine, um, you're sometimes biased towards the, the data that it's feeding off of. Think about it. A machine learning piece can only create responses based on data you fed it. Mm. So you can kind of see where, and, and I don't want to get political on it, but where if you feed it, let's just say you feed it the newscast from MSNBC versus the newscast from Fox Television, and then you ask ChatGPT a question, you can be pretty sure the answers are going to be different. So what is the truth? What is reality right. on, on the responses there? So there's, there's fall fallacies in the vetting of the data that's being used for these generative AI tools. The fallacy is believing that these tools are omnipotent and, and don't make mistakes. Uh, they might follow a very complex algorithm. They're really nothing more than algorithms. You had old algorithms. You have newer ones that are just better, faster, and be, seem more natural. But they're going to be subject to those same fallacies, which immediately drops you into the reality of um, the ethical use questions. Anything that has great power has the great ability to be used. It. You know, um, um, everything from, okay, we generated, you know, 10% or 14%. I don't know the number off the top of my head. I'm not in that business, you know, from nuclear power, but we all know what nuclear power can do from a destructive stage too. So generative AI and deep fakes in particular um, um, have the ability to be misused just like anything. So how do you, how do you govern that? What is the governance and compliancy behind the ethical use of AI? Um, it's out of my jurisdiction, but I think that's one of the shortcomings is that AI is touted right now as the magic bullet, the silver bullet. Right. And, and, and no, it's, it's, it's gotta be governed and controlled and complied with just like anything else. Um, but if put in the right hands, the productivity efficiencies and gains you can get from it um, can absolutely move the needle. Right. And it can move the needle in the right direction if, if, if we deploy it correctly. Right. And something like w w what you've created and what you're building and, and putting out there is not necessarily uh, making decisions per se. Mm -hmm. It's it's more directing and, and sort of letting people know, like, these are just objective truths. Like, the, the blood lab yeah. is that way. Like, there's no there's no other way to, like, put this. Like, it's yeah. in that, go down this hallway, turn left at this door, whatever, right? Yeah. So So in that sense, it's like, it's just, you know, working on, again, increasing well, efficiency. Not to interrupt you there, but even yeah. outside of the wayfinding piece, um, when we do work in clinical trial, we do use generative AI. But what we do is take on what Microsoft calls an active approach. So the efficiencies of generating your data, generating your animation, generating your 
personalities and all can be um, improved dramatically by the use of these AI tools. I mean, we're probably one of the biggest consumers of open AI, um, as well as Microsoft's AI tools and processing tools. But what we do is then we go, okay, we're not the governance body in compliance. You're our client. You're the healthcare provider. You've got decades of um, um, uh, brain power from your patient experience team and your healthcare staff and your hospital staff and your physicians and your surgeons and everybody that's associated with that. So we take that generative piece and then we vet it through the teams at the hospital or the teams at the clinical trial organization, and they have to script and approve any of the content that's delivered. Right. So think of it as using the efficiencies of AI to create those output, to create that communication um, layer between you and the technology behind it, but using a um, live human staff as that arbitrator, yeah. a, um, a layer, of, that, a layer of control that keeps it yes. that keeps it human. It adds a little bit to the to the to the um, you know um, support and maintenance required for it because it sure. does require human intervention. But at least at this stage in the evolution of generative AI and AI in, in general, um, we believe that's necessary because of the um, potential harm that can be done. So we don't, bottom line is we don't turn our AI loose and let it think right. for itself per se, if you can use that term. We, we really do try to set, set those expectations that at least at this stage in the evolution of AI, um, we prefer to have that checks and balances of the humans involved in that uh, process. Right. And as someone who knows very little about this, that seems like a very logical and, and good thing <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that people should be doing. So it makes makes a ton of sense to yeah. me. Uh, Chuck, as we're kind of getting to a close here, uh, what what is coming up next for personas? What are what are you guys really focused on? Like what is, you know, priority number one and sort of what's and then what can we expect in the next maybe five years or so? It'd be kind of fun. Um, what we're really doing is we've grown this personality engine, which we call the personas engine. Um and we, we believe heavily in that. But because it is so new, we're building these solutions. Like you said, the healthcare solution, the wayfinding solution, the clinical recruitment solution. I think we're doing some airport wayfinding, uh, some general product specialist type stuff. But as a general rule, we're focusing on that healthcare sector. So what you can really expect is as we get traction, improve that platform, our ultimate goal um, in that three to five year frame is to... Um, if you're a software guy, your brother would know this. Um, we, they use this term dog fooding, which means you're building your own solution using your own technology stack. So you're feeding yourself, basically. So we're really building these solutions, these specific solutions like the Wayfinder or like the clinical consent or clinical recruitment piece. We're building that with our own personality engine. Now, we know we're not a big company. We're not going to dominate the world. We don't want to dominate the world. But what we do want to do is to be able to go and say, okay, if we can prove the benefits of these communication layers, and this is going to improve the interaction, the human technology computer engagement piece, and we'll help scale that human experience, we know that someone that does visitor management systems or someone that does, um, um, you know, retail marketing or does a trade show or is a vending machine, you know, and you want to figure out how to, you know, be able to ask someone to, hey, I want a, uh, a large venti latte with almond milk and an extra shot of, uh, of vanilla. You know, that's, that's a conversational thing we're so used to asking at your local coffee shop, but no one can really do that in an automated fashion. I'm um, not that that's a great example, but the point is, is, um, 
eventually that personality pack, that personality engine, we want to turn over to the world and to have people that want that same type of user engagement that we're showing in the healthcare world for whatever market and vertical they're in, then they would be able to utilize that. Just like the evolution when internet first came around and everybody was running bulletin board systems. I don't know. I'll show my age again. And everything was text-based. And every once in a while, we had this big epiphany where, ooh, you could show a static graphic and you, you start opening up this internet. But then they developed this HTML language, and all of a sudden, everybody is able to build experiences on top of this HTML layer, which is really a user interface layer. We want to be that user interface layer for the AI avatar evolution right. to how people now interact. I now don't have to use my mouse and click on buttons. I can talk. Right. Who's doing that right now? That's what we want to be. Yeah, no, it makes a ton of sense. And, you know, even in, as I think about what you're saying in my own world application is like, uh, you know, when I coach people, there's only one of me. So I can't like I can't be I can only talk to one person at a time. I can only be in one place at a time. I can only do so much. But the way to like scale again, business stuff is like, how do I duplicate myself? Well, if I had a, a an AI avatar of me that I train to speak in the way that I speak and whatever to answer basic questions, to answer admin type questions, you know, these kind of things, schedule appointments, those stuff that's like it's not really the best use of my time, but I still have right. to do it. That would be a great way to scale Absolutely. my efficiency so that I could focus more time and effort on the things that, you know, I actually have to do myself. So, and, and, and that would translate across uh, every industry. I can't imagine a thing that that wouldn't yep. help where it's like, Hey, if you just get something to do this basic stuff that like, it can do, you can spend more time doing stuff you actually care about. You're absolutely correct. And we actually did a piece like that with UNC where there was a clinical psychiatrist that handled a certain number of patients. And when they were, you know, checking my caloric intake, checking my weight every day, as long as you knew that, okay, well, you know what, you're taking in more calories and you're burning, you have a standard response, you know, exercise more, <laughs> stop eating so much. Um, but those were in the realms of what you would expect to answer. Right. So we would generate those responses automatically. We would sit with the clinical psychiatrist and then came with a bunch of more, more complex rules, but create those rules. But then when you got out of that pattern, you would schedule that intervention. So to your point, um, and I'm only saying this because I love your use case and we've, we've done that. It's, it's not only, Hey, I want to book an appointment. I'm a fitness trainer and I want to book an a new client. You could actually go in and say, okay, now here are the rudimentary pieces we're going to do with my class right. or my students. And as long as you're staying within the realms of what we call normalcy, you can automate that type of uh, response. Okay, today we're going to do this types of fitness. We're going to focus on core today. We're going to focus on upper body. We're going to do, and I apologize. I don't know your industry <laughs> like good. you do. Um, and, and, and then go, well, wait a second. Something's not going on here. You're showing this data and this data and that's not lining up. Wait, you, you need my, you need my expertise now. This right. is when I come in and in the clinical world, it helps scale the clinical psychiatrist's ability to handle more patients. Right. So that's a good example of not trying to replace a physician. It's trying to allow that physician to scale their expertise within a population by eliminating what we'd consider the normalcy and let her focus on the complex cases that required intervention and some deeper digging. Yeah. Yeah. No, wonderful. I mean, again, I think the, 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 the crux of this conversation is just that Efficiency is the key. And if we can increase efficiency, then we can allow humans to be more human and do more human stuff, which is which is good for, for everyone. So well spoken. 
Thank you. Uh, this has been a super interesting conversation. I could I could sit here and ask you questions for, for hours about AI. It's, it's fascinating to me and, and I'm sure it will continue to get more fascinating, but um, I think we've left you know people with a lot to, to think about and, and also being, being respective of, uh, of your time as well here, Chuck. Um, is there anything you want to let the people know about contact info, that kind of stuff? I'll put it all in the show notes, but if you want to kind of rattle it off here for people. Uh, I, 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 I do. I mean, the, the best place is just go to, you can kind of personas.com is the overall engine. iHealth Assist is where we like to direct people because we're really um, passionate about our healthcare play. So the letter I with health and A-S-S-I-S-S-T, iHealth Assist is where I'd go if people are interested in how this is helping the patient community. Um, I always hesitate and I, I plead and beg with this this line. I, I, I'm a LinkedIn guy. I, I make a lot of my communications through LinkedIn and a lot of people have seen me on different podcasts and they take the opportunity to use it to try to spam me or sell me something. <laughs> so I ask you politely, audience members, don't use this to try to sell me something. But if you genuinely go, ooh, I listened to that. I think we could do something cool. Hey, I want to know more about this. Then then LinkedIn is the best way to get hold of me personally. But I just plead on the uh, uh, spamming. <laughs> I think we'd I think we'd all all plead on that. The, the beauty of social media is everyone has access to you, and, and the worst part is that everyone has access to you. Exactly. <laughs> so I get exactly. I, I'm with you on that. Please, please do not sell your nonsense stuff to, to Chuck. If you have something real, then, you know, maybe go through the proper channels, but, you know, say save your nonsense things to, for yourself. <laughs> but uh, personas, everyone, I'll put all the the uh, contact info in the show notes, Chuck Rinker um, on LinkedIn. I'll put everything again in the show notes. I appreciate you guys for listening and being open-minded about all of this stuff. Chuck, is there anything, any last message that you want to leave the people with here? In closing? Nope. You said it better than I did. Let's, let's scale the human experience. Let's, uh, let's think, think of this as a tool, not, not a replacement. This is a productivity tool. This is not a human replacement. Stop watching so many Hollywood movies and getting freaked out by iRobot and the likes. And that, that, that's not where we're at in the world. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Chuck. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, follow us on social media. Give the podcast a you know like, share, subscribe, share it with a friend, five-star rating, all that good stuff. It helps the show grow and helps the message get out there. And that's that. Go outside. Be a good person. See you soon. <laughs>